Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, June 13th, and we're breaking down the Fiat-Renault merger discussions. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Auto Analyst, John Rosevier via Skype. How you doing, John? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I think we, we've got a fun topic today. You know, we were chatting a little bit before the show. This is almost as much kind of a political intrigue story as it is a, a business story. So, just for a little background, uh, on May 27th, Fiat Chrysler uh, submitted a proposal to merge with Renault. Uh, the terms of the deal would, would uh, create a 50-50% uh, ownership stake between Fiat and Renault shareholders, and that would be completely separate uh, from the 20-year partnership uh, that Renault has enjoyed with, Ria, with uh, Nissan and Mitsubishi. They're projecting $5.6 billion in annual savings. And it sounds like both of these companies have been really interested in moving through on this deal. However, uh, there's been some snags in the past couple of weeks. You want to give us a little background on what's been behind this deal and what we've seen uh, in the past you know, week or so? Well, first of all, when the deal came out, I think a lot of us said, well, clearly this isn't out of the blue. This, you know, this is a formal proposal that FCA has made after talking to Renault about what would it take. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really felt like it, Renault's board immediately released a statement saying, you know, we're reviewing this with great enthusiasm or something like that. Uh, I, I forget exactly what they said, but it was, it, it was clearly, you know, this friendly proposal is of great interest to us, <laughs> which seemed like a translation from French of "we're in." Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, I mean. Initially, Nissan said, yeah, we're not going to stand in the way of this. And then things got a lot more complicated. And as I was saying to Nick before the show, really the way to think about this is this is a dance between four parties. And the parties are Fiat Chrysler, Renault, Nissan, and the French government, which owns a stake in Renault and wants to keep the jobs and French ownership and all of that stuff and has those kinds of interests in this. And and. I mean, the dance went around and round, and finally, uh, John Elkan, who's the chairman of Fiat Chrysler, uh, said, "All right, look, we're walking away." <laughs> so, it, it, it's it, you know, digging into this is really wild, um, kind of a soap opera almost. Yeah, and I think there's some personalities involved in this as well that you can trace back uh, to this deal. You had Sergio Marchionne, who had been the CEO of Fiat Chrysler for a long period of time, had been exploring. Uh, different merger opportunities. I think I'd read he'd, he'd look, talk to GM, several other other folks trying to uh, find a partner uh, uh, for Fiat. Uh, however, I, I, you know he had been a reputation for a very tough negotiator. But, you know people were very nervous that, that they're going to get a bad deal from him. But he, he suddenly passed away last summer, and that changed the entire dynamic at Fiat, as you said, with John Elkan taking over Renault. Very similar situation with the Carlos uh, Gozin, uh, uh, you know, uh, criminal investigation that has removed him. Uh, from the top of the Nissan-Renault partnership, removing these huge personalities from both of these businesses. What role do you think that's played in this merger maybe uh, getting explored today and in the background politics of it? Well, I mean, it just makes it easier to make a phone call. You know, you call up and introduce yourself and say, <laughs> you know, somebody like John Elkan can, can, make, a, can make a call that perhaps um, Sergio would have had a harder time making. I mean, Sergio was Sergio and Gosen both um, these two huge, larger than life characters in the auto business for many years. I mean, Gosen was effectively CEO of both Nissan and Renault, which are separate companies, but not really separate companies uh, that have been in what they call an alliance, which is 
you know, this agreement to share parts and 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 engineering costs and so forth uh, in, in different regions of the world. And he put this together, and he was, you know, the big deal. He was he was sort of one of the great people you want as a keynote speaker at your auto conference. He he was he, a big celebrity in the business, and uh, something that we are still learning about happened in Japan at Nissan, where all of a sudden all the knives came out for him at once, and he was not just sort of run out of Nissan, but he was arrested and charged with, with various things, misusing company funds, more or less, uh, in, in what was clear, clearly there's an agenda going on here that goes beyond, um, you know, what you see in the headlines, uh, separately, I, there, there was no drama like that with Sergio. He just died. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he had, he had, um, some he had gone in for shoulder surgery or something like that, something fairly routine, and you know they had discovered he had the bad cancer, and 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 he struggled for a while, and then I mean he went downhill. I mean Sergio was a guy who smoked an awful lot of cigarettes, so in a sense it's not surprising that in his mid sixties he was going to, you know, hit something like this. But uh, it was very sudden, and um, he was, you know, he is greatly missed inside uh, both Fiat Chrysler and Ferrari. He was also CEO of Ferrari, uh, and and I mean he was a gi- another giant leader of both companies. Reputation is a very blunt talker, uh, very sharp, very no nonsense. Uh, spoke Italian and English fluently, and his English uh, was often very, shall we say, cover- colorful, uh, very blunt, even with analysts. Um, in a way that you didn't really hear from anybody else in the industry. And and he came out a few years ago and said, look, this only makes sense if we start some consolidation. You know, there, there's too much duplication of effort. It drives everybody's costs up. It makes cars more expensive. It's not sustainable, you know, and, and it crushes everybody's profit margins. It's not sustainable long term, especially as we're looking to go to new technologies and so forth. We just can't do it. There need to be fewer companies with more scale. And one of the reasons that... Uh, they spun Ferrari out, really, was thought to be at the time when they did Ferrari's IPO and made it a standalone company rather than under the FCA wing, was so that Ferrari could stay in under Italian ownership while they took the rest of the company and sold it or merged it to another automaker. Uh, and that was, that was sort of very clearly seen as a signal that they're serious about this talk. And yeah, he did, he did woo General Motors. Mary Barra told him he wasn't interested. Uh, we now know that he had a few phone calls uh, with... Uh, with Bill Ford, um, executive chairman of Ford Motor Company, uh, and and it never got beyond the phone call stage. Uh, he probably had calls with most of the other major automakers we can think of. Um, but then he was off the stage, and and Elkan, who was uh, the representative of the Agnelli family that has controlled Fiat for decades, and and who was kind of um, Sergio's protege in a sense. Elkan is young; he's early forties. A uh, very smart guy um, decided to to pursue things clearly, and, and this conversation happened. Uh, and perhaps on the I don't know the Renault side quite as well. It's not a company that we follow closely in the United States, although I've always kept an eye on it. Uh, clearly, you know, having Gosen out of the picture felt like well, maybe we aren't bound to the alliance quite so firmly anymore, and maybe we can make our own decisions that are in the best interests of Renault and Renault's shareholders, and boy, this sounds like it could be a really, you know, it could give us the scale that we need. Uh, FCA has something we would very much like, which is a, a big presence in North America where, where SUVs can be sold at great profits. Uh, 
we have something uh, that FCA would like, which is a fairly advanced position in electric vehicles. And there's a lot of, there, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, synergy to be had here. And, and it, it, it feels like a fit to us. And, you know, now that Gosen is not, you know, exploring his plans for global domination or whatever, and we're out from under that, perhaps we can have a real conversation here. And, and that's what led to this, I think, as far as we can tell from news reports and the few things I've heard from inside, inside FCA. They were they were optimistic going into this. I mean, I mean, there was a thought in both companies that this was going to happen and happen quickly. And clearly, we saw some wrenches to get thrown in the works. Yeah, I think I think we we've seen FCA in particular when we look at some of their issues in Europe getting ready to be hammered with with some uh, emissions issues, not having as much of a robust uh, electric presence as maybe some other other automakers. This merger with Renault would solve that problem for them. They've been buying some credits from some other automakers to kind of, you know, uh, cover. Uh, you know, handle handle their business in the near term, but that's not going to be a long term solution. And if they can merge with Renault, that covers those uh, you know EV requirements in Europe. Um, so, so there's some clear synergies. However, as you said, uh, part of the, the tensions here have been with Nissan, who is a you know they, they have this big partnership with Renault that's been going on for 20 years. Carlos Gosen was the, the kind of cornerstone of that partnership. Um, however, there there that has begun to fray, and that's been part of the tension that that is. That has disrupted this deal, uh, and probably the, the beginning of this was uh, Nissan has been seeking to uh, probably in the aftermath of you know the Gosen controversy change some of its corporate governance structures. Uh, I think I think they wanted to finally create a committee for compensation and things like that. Um, but Renault has threatened to hold back support uh, for that for those governance changes. Concerns that changing those uh, those terms would impact Renault's ability to uh, influence what's going on at Nissan. Renault is a 43% shareholder in Nissan. So, of course, anything that's going to reduce their influence there is concerning to them. And then Nissan turned around and opposed uh, the FCA merger. So, so we've got this tension, this core tension in the, in the Renault-Nissan partnership caused by Gosen being removed that has really thrown a wrench in this, in this FCA deal. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about those background tensions there in the partnership? I'm not sure it caused the tensions. I, I think um, it, it felt like both parties thought they might be headed for a divorce. And then all of a sudden, you know, this starts and the other one's like, wait, you're going too far. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost felt like that from outside. Um, what is becoming clear is Gosen, um, I don't want to say made a lot of enemies, but um, had a lot of opposition that had perhaps held its voice while he was in power, and that now, all right, now that Carlos is is not with us anymore, we can go my way, we can go this way, we can go this very different way, and 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 these kinds of conversations happening inside both companies, as as executive management teams figured out where are we going to take this next, and I think there was some real testing of the relationship and some questions as to whether maybe turning in other directions were the better thing, and. You know, I, I mean, somebody somebody inside Renault was like, you know, this whole thing with Nissan was just cooked up by Gosen uh, because he wanted to be, you know, uh, the great king of autos or something like that. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you can hear that there's a lot of maybe a lot of chafing and resentment now that he's gone. Like, we're going to do our own thing. You know, we're not we're not reporting to Gosen anymore. We're not we're not second banana in this relationship anymore. <laughs> we're going to assert our own direction. And, and oh, hey, John Elkan wants to talk to us. Well, that, that might be the way to go. 
long term rather than this this very frayed relationship with Nissan. Um, or maybe we could bring the whole thing along, uh, but not with Nissan driving. Right. And then, and, and, so, and, and that, so, I mean, you can feel those, you know, if you read between the lines a little bit of the quotes you see in the media and what you hear from people, you can feel some of those tensions that, that there was, there was some resentment on the Renault side, uh, on the Nissan side, there was, there was some whole, you know, why doesn't Renault shut up and come along with us? And, <laughs> yeah, I, and, 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 and you can kind of see how it went. Like I said, it's, it felt like the relationship was headed for a divorce and, and it was that sort of dynamic. Right. And then and so as a result of this tension between Nissan, that's where we get our fourth dance partner, like you mentioned, off the top, which is the French government, which has seemed to take the side of Nissan in this in this entire debate, saying, uh, you know, Renault should fix its its 20 year relationship with Nissan before it ever explores a merger uh, uh, with Fiat. As soon as that came out, that's when Elkan came out and said, listen, the political environment in France right now is currently not conducive to this merger going through. So therefore, we're, we're going to pull out. Uh, you know, there's some background there in, in France. Obviously, you set off the top wanting to protect jobs in the country. They've had the yellow vest protests in that country, which clearly have been on the minds uh, of, you know, the political actors there. Um, yeah, I mean, is this merger kind of dead on arrival here with the, the political issues here? And it seems to be that the Nissan relationship is on the rocks. I mean, what it, what is going to save this merger in the near term, given all these intrigue with between all these parties? Well, as a colleague of mine said, when the news came out that FCA had walked away, um, you know, walking away from the table is a time-honored Italian negotiating technique, <laughs> right? And, 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 you know, throwing up your hands and say, forget it, I can't work with you. And, and, a sense that this maybe isn't done. Uh, I mean, what we have here is Renault would like to do the deal, more or less as written. FCA would like to do the deal, more or less as written, as the proposal went. Uh, the wrenches are coming from elsewhere, and they're, they're, they're people who have leverage over Renault, to, or entities that have leverage over Renault to some degree. And so those are the sticking points. Um, it would not surprise me if in two weeks, a month, something like that, uh, we hear that, you know, there's a revised merger proposal that uh, that Nissan won't oppose and the French government has signed off on. Uh, it, it, there seems to be some things happening behind the scene here. Uh, it would also not surprise me if, if, like, they really, you know, these these outside dancers, as as we called them. Um, <laughs> You know, really do kibosh the deal. Uh, I think it, I think it should happen. I think the deal, as proposed, made a lot of sense. Um, Sergio was not wrong in saying that uh, margins are too spin and thin, and they all spend too much money that could be that could be streamlined and 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 cut. You know, if if greater economies of scale were applied, and the way you do that is by combining, you know, Renault sales with FCA sales in different markets and rationalizing products and, and you know, sharing the stuff under the skin that, that most customers don't pay attention to, the, the architectures and, and so forth uh, that allow vehicles to be built on the same assembly line um, and, and, and that save engineering costs. There's a lot of potential for that here. There's a lot of potential for, um, reducing costs in a lot of ways. But of course, when the French government hears that, they see French jobs going away. And and among their other concerns about ownership and this and that, that, that is something that uh, 
we see consistently as a concern with many governments, especially in Western Europe. You know, when we talk about combining automakers, they're like, well, you know, you can't cut any jobs. And so one of the things FCA said in its initial proposal uh, was, you know, we're not closing a single factory. You know, we can we can do this without closing a single factory. I mean, that, that was a key point of what they said on day one when this became public in their initial press release. You know, no factories will be closed. Uh, we would reduce costs by sharing engineering and so forth, uh, which seemed to be a way of saying, you know, we won't cut blue collar jobs, but we might cut white collar jobs. <laughs> but 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 even then, if, 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 if that might have been enough to bring France in saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. And as you said, uh, you know, follow, the, the FCA proposed that this this combined company be domiciled in the Netherlands. Uh, FCA itself is now domiciled in the Netherlands. Um, for reasons that have to do with uh, ensuring that the uh, Nelly family has, has a controlling stake, um, as I understand it. And, you know, maybe that was negotiable. Uh, I don't know. Um, but that, 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 if that's a sticking point, then that's something that's going to have to be addressed if the deal is going to be revived. Uh, I do not think we've heard the end of the story. Um, there, there's still an unfolding drama um, inside Nissan and Renault had a shareholder meeting yesterday, and there, there was quite a bit of back and forth on all of this stuff, and it sounded like Renault was leaving the door open. I, I mean, it was my takeaway from, from the notes I read from that meeting. Uh, but whether FCA will be allowed by the other parties to walk through it is a different question. <laughs> Yeah, something to continue to watch. Obviously, a lot of political intrigue here that maybe is swallowing up some of the clear business benefits of what this combination might might uh, generate. Um, on the back half of the show, we'll talk about why we're seeing so many of these automotive uh, partnerships, particularly in the past couple years. Uh, but first, when it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. We use LinkedIn here at The Motley Fool uh, to reach out to new hires and to identify people who might fit in with our culture here at the company. When you use LinkedIn, your LinkedIn job matches are based on skills and background, sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Uh, matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way, you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality uh, job opportunities. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, John, so on the back half of the show, I want to look a little bit more macro on what's going on in the automotive industry and just talk about what are the, the factors that are driving so many partnerships uh, between automakers that we've seen in the past you know, year or two. I mean, just, just recently, we've seen Toyota partner with Suzuki, Subaru, and Mazda on EVs. Ford and VW have partnered... Uh, maybe six, six months ago, uh, for, uh, GM and Honda have partnered on batteries. We've got, uh, you know, uh, just a large number of partnerships over the past year. We just mentioned the potential merger between Fiat and Renault. Um, what do you think are the, are the key drivers behind this, both from a technology point of view as well as a broader macro auto market uh, perspective? First, as Sergio Marchione always said, um, you know, there were too many automakers spending too much money on 
redundant things. You know, everybody goes out and invent, reinvents the wheel every few years. Uh, and, and so, I mean, this is a high cost, low margin business and those costs are not coming down as fast as, as people would think, but they can, could come down if you could get larger scale. Now take that thinking and take the generally, and add in the generally accepted view that the world is moving towards electric vehicles and increase, increasing automation. Uh, you know, this is the self-driving cars thing. Um, those are expensive technologies to develop. Uh, you know, electric vehicles aren't, the electric vehicle tech itself isn't quite as radical as some people think it is. You know, it's not like Tesla invented this and nobody else can do it. Uh, it's mostly it's mostly straightforward. Uh, the tricky part, the thing that has taken time for the big automakers to to bring EVs to market on scale is the supply chain. I mean, there just wasn't enough lithium and cobalt and so forth coming out of the ground for a while to make enough batteries for all of these cars everybody wanted to make. Uh, there's a lot of infrastructure between the lithium mine and the car factory that has to come into place. You know, we have to make batteries, we have to make battery packs, uh, we need to be making electric motors, the right kinds of electric motors, what are the right kinds of electric motors, we need a factory to make a whole lot of electric motors. Uh, this kind of this kind of stuff all has to be worked out. and and. Companies like Volkswagen and GM and so forth have been bringing along these supply chains. Uh, but the amount of money being spent here is quite big on both of those initiatives, both the whole self-driving thing and the, the electrification. Um, you know, you're talking billions. And if everybody's spending billions, there's going to be some thought towards, well, what if we joined forces? You know, We're not sharing vehicle designs, but you know, fuel cells. Are fuel cells a thing? Well, GM and Honda were both asking the same questions around the same time. Well, all right, let's join forces and develop fuel cells. You know, we'll bring, GM has been tinkering with fuel cells since the 1960s. They bring a lot to the table. Honda had some uh, ideas and technology of its own. They brought some to the table. They, they you know, they joined forces. We're going to develop fuel cells together. Um, they developed sort of what what was viewed as an intermediate solution. Honda chose to to roll it out in limited numbers with a car. GM said, "We'll wait for the next generation." But the project continues. For instance, this is just one thing, and now that has expanded. The two companies, from an engineering perspective, have found they work well together. Well, okay, um, yeah. GM has an electric vehicle in mass production and and is working on expanding and developing its next generation. Uh, battery technology, which which is coming fairly soon, uh, which will spawn a whole second generation of electric vehicles beyond the, the you know the the things that go beyond the Chevy Bolt Bolt rather, and Honda said, hey, can we get in on that? We'll give you you know it saves us the trouble of developing our own battery pack technology, and gives you scale right away, and and so that and, and we know we work well together, and we will design our own electric cars, but we'll design them around your battery packs. And GM said, okay, and and so that's going on. I mean, that has replicated itself with different pairings throughout the industry. Ford and VW have had some huge talks. Uh, they are thought to be days away from a deal um, where VW will make a substantial investment in Argo AI, which is a startup that Ford essentially funded and took a majority stake in and then sort of delegated their self-driving software team to, <laughs> sent them to Pittsburgh to go work for Argo AI. Uh, and, and Argo AI is, is best thought of as the slightly outsourced but not fully outsourced um, software team for Ford's self-driving effort. The hardware is still being done in-house in, in Michigan. Um, and Ford has always said, you know, will share if, if, if people want to bring money. And VW, uh, which appears to have gotten frustrated with the company they were working with on self-driving stuff, is, is 
uh, close to signing a deal to, to participate there, for instance. Um, and, and, you know, we can point at a lot of the different automakers have these kinds of relationships. Uh, Toyota owns stakes and a couple of, uh, you know, it owns stakes and Subaru. It owns, uh, it has a close relationship with Mazda. Uh, so of course they're all doing, uh, jumping into electric vehicles as a group because uh, Subaru is a profitable company, but it, by auto standards, it's a tiny one. They sell about a million vehicles a year worldwide, most of them in the United States. Uh, they don't have the scale of, of somebody like Toyota, but you know if they work together with Toyota, then they can develop Subaru-flavored vehicles off the common technology that is developed. Um, and that gives Toyota even more scale when it goes to, to buy batteries, when it goes to set up factories and so forth, and that brings costs down for everyone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we're seeing this story over and over. Yeah, I, I think you know to your point off the top, I, I think a lot of people – don't realize how complicated the automotive supply chain is, how many layers there are of suppliers uh, that, that go from, you know, tier one supplier, tier two, all the way down uh, to, to make these vehicles. And when you have a fundamental change in technology, switching to switching to EVs, uh, you just that supply chain hasn't been developed. You know, you, you've seen Tesla quote out that when they first started to scale up, they realized, hey, to meet our targets, we need to make more batteries than exist in the world today. Um, so clearly there needs to be a, a scale up. Um, in the infrastructure to support uh, uh, this industry, um, and yeah, you see, remember, for, I mean, Tesla is huge in investors' minds and has been for years. But in terms of volumes per car per year, it's tiny compared to. I mean, you know, Tesla is hoping to sell five hundred thousand vehicles a year um, at some point soon. VW sells ten million. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a huge difference in scale, and and. So, you know, if Tesla is having trouble getting enough batteries and VW wants, you know, some significant percentage of its vehicles to be fully electric by the mid 2020s, imagine what VW has got to do, <laughs> you know, in terms of getting all of the all of the inputs to its assembly plants to make those to make those vehicles. Uh, the batteries, the battery packs, uh, the raw materials, the motors, all, it's all the stuff we just talked about. Uh, it's much huger than what Tesla had to do and cobble together. Uh, the good news is that some suppliers have gotten educated either by working with Tesla or watching Tesla on what, what's going to go on here, and by the, the sort of tinkering level EV programs we've seen at, at several automakers over the last several years, uh, where they're sort of like doing a proof of concept. I mean, you can even think of the Chevy Bolt as GM's sort of large-scale proof of concept. Can we mass-produce electric cars, and what does it cost, and and who's ready to supply us and all of that stuff. And, and you know, the simple analysis is GM loses money on the Bolt program. Yeah, but GM's learned an awful lot. And, and that's been going on elsewhere too. And, and one of the lessons that seems to have been learned is that partnerships can give us more scale to bring costs down. Right, exactly. It's just going to require a huge investment to develop the, the, the amount of, of kind of supply chain and infrastructure mm -hmm. to support how large, you know, people expect EVs to be in the future. I, there needs to be likely a supply chain as robust as the current internal combustion engine supply chain in order to support this industry going forward. And that has not yet to be developed. And that takes a lot of money. One other factor as well, you've talked about how expensive developing EVs and autonomy uh, you know, is. There is also a cyclicality to the auto market that can make making those big investments difficult um, as the market begins to slow. We saw last year China, the largest auto market in the world, had its first decline in vehicle sales in 20 years, declined by 5.8%. Vehicle sales in the U.S. have been about flat. So 
as you look at an auto market that appears to be maybe teetering about uh, of turning over a little bit, how much more important are these partnerships and cost sharing relationships to to support these companies as they weather you know the cyclical downturn? Well, I think a lot of automakers are, are saying, "Okay, how much cash have I got?" <laughs> because you need the cash. You know, the plan is that when there's a downturn, uh, because automakers have such high fixed costs, uh, their profits disappear a lot faster. You know, if Ford loses a third of its sales, um, it's barely breaking even, and it, and it may be you know into the red and and. You know, you wouldn't necessarily think that if your model is a software company, but it is. Uh, and so, you know, Ford, GM, Toyota, Volkswagen, other companies maintain a hefty cash reserve. And that's because the, that's a lesson from the past. In the past, when, you know, economic downturns have happened and, and profits have swung to losses, uh, automakers have responded by cutting future development programs cutting their future product programs. Um, and the ones who had, who managed to get through the downturn without cutting those are the ones who had the freshest product uh, when buyers started to come back to the showrooms in the early stages of the recovery, and they were able to gain market share. And this is why Ford surged early in the decade, uh, because you know the 2008-2009 Great Recession happened, the economic crisis and all of that. And uh, you know 2010-2011, you know, GM went through bankruptcy, uh, you know, even Toyota had to cut future product programs. Ford's got brand new cars in the showroom and they're good. You know? <laughs> and boom, all of a sudden Ford's the bell of the ball for a while. And they made a lot of money, uh, you know, through 2015 or so, uh, because they were out ahead of everybody because they, you know, uh, because Alan Mulally and his team mortgaged everything they could to raise the money to keep product development going. And that was a, that was a big lesson to everybody and said, okay, we need a cash reserve you know, in the twenty billion dollar range, give or take, depending on the size of the size of the company, so that next time, you know, we don't have to mortgage anything. We just have, you know, a bank account we can draw down to fund all this stuff. And looking at, well, you know, we can get to self driving if we spend ten billion more. And you know, or for instance, in conversations like that that might have been happening in automakers over the last year or two. Like, all right, look, we got, you know, we're very late in the cycle here by historic standards. We got to hold on to the cash. And that means that, you know, if we're going to keep it, and at the same time, we feel like we might be in a race here that, you know, the first three or four companies to achieve um, what our friend Mr. Musk calls full self driving uh, may reap a share of the profits, at least in the commercial markets. Um, you know, so we don't want to be behind. We don't want to be seen as left behind. At the same time, we've got uh, environmental mandates to meet in Europe, in China, and so forth, and you know, to some lesser extent, in the United States. And we need the electric cars, and we need the hybrids, and we need. And there's just consumer demand for more advanced driver systems that that are related to self-driving to enhance safety. Uh, and so the pressure is on to to stay competitive with these technologies. At the same time, the pressure is on to maybe hold on to cash and not throw so much at things that aren't going to be profitable for years to come. And, and so, yeah, that is a motivator coming together. I, I, you know, there are storm clouds on the distant horizon. Uh, we don't know when they're going to get here, but you know, there has always been a next recession. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is how it works. And, and, and some sense that, you know, maybe we want to get our costs down before the storm gets here uh, so that we can, have a better chance of staying in the black throughout, or at least breaking even, without you know having to tap. 
those cash reserves if we can get the cost down. And and all of these conversations are happening. And so sure, this is this is driving people to say, well, you know, if we if we get VW in on this, yeah, they're a competitor, um, but we can structure it so that we're not going head to head in too many ways, and we can share the technology, and we both save X billion dollars. Uh, you know, those kinds of deals are definitely uh, getting talked about in a way that they weren't five years ago. And and this is all why. Yeah, it, it's a very much kind of Boy Scout motto: be prepared. You know, you. Y- you can go full speed after after you know EVs and autonomy. However, you know if you get if you get caught by the downturn and you're you're in a, a situation where you don't have the liquidity to to ride through that, you know you're never going to enjoy the benefits of those investments. So I, I tell you, I, if you ask me to take over as CEO of one of these auto companies tomorrow, that's a tough job. I don't know if I'd if I'd sign up for it. Um, one it's one last hard, thing I want to I want to talk hard business to make money. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. There's a clear tension between what you have to do to keep up going into the future, as well as what you have to do to stay solvent in the near term. You know, depending on how the cycle shakes out, and the cycle is so difficult to predict. You know, as we all know, we've talked about on the show a bunch. Last thing I, I did want to talk about, and you mentioned it a little bit with Argo AI, but we've talked about these partnerships between these major OEMs, major automakers, VW, GM. But there is a role to play for these autonomous startup companies. Uh, Aurora was that company you mentioned uh, that had had a partnership with VW. Uh, just yesterday, I believe VW announced that they're not going to renew their deal with Aurora. They're going to sign on with Argo AI. However, uh, just this week, Aurora has announced partnerships with Fiat Chrysler, as well as uh, extended their partnership with Hyundai. And not to go too deep into those partnerships, but what role going forward do you think, and how significant a role going forward do you think these kind of independent autonomy startups will play? And do you think they'll kind of, you know, the the major OEMs will pick and choose their, the ones that they'll work with, and those will become little fiefdoms, I guess, in, in the autonomy space? What role do you think these, these small autonomous startups will play? Well, from Silicon Valley's perspective, wow, Cruise got bought out early for a lot of money. <laughs> How do we do that? You know, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, the Argo AI founders, um, you know, got a big investment that stands to make them very wealthy. Uh, how do we do that? How do how do it, it's it's I think five years ago, the idea was that, you know, we were talking all the talk was about disruption, that these companies were going to come out of Silicon Valley and invent superior technology and blow Detroit and Stuttgart and everybody else uh, completely into you know, historical oblivion. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, I, th- I think everybody has watched uh, Elon Musk and come to the conclusion, wow, actually manufacturing vehicles is really hard. <laughs> and so maybe, and, and then, you know, the cruise deal happened where, you know, this little company that had like 35 employees, 40 employees, GM swooped in and took them out uh, for big money. And, and, you know, the cruise founders are, are happy. They are still working at GM. Uh, the technology is moving along. It is making progress. Well, okay. You know, if you're, if you're someone who has worked in artificial intelligence and on problems related to self-driving cars for several years and you've become an expert and you've got a couple friends who are an expert, uh, you're going to be asking yourself, how do we get a billion dollars? <laughs> right. Uh, and, 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 you know, maybe we shouldn't be trying to beat them rather. Maybe we should be trying to join them. Let's become, you know, the outsourced, uh, center of expertise uh, for these companies that can be our customers, they can be our partners. Uh, we're open to a lot of arrangements. Um, so, I, I mean, this is a way for. I mean, there's a limited pool of talent that can really do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number, the number of people who can actually credibly, plausibly uh, work toward developing self-driving vehicles is quite small. Uh, the market for their 
expertise right now is quite huge. And these partnerships are ways for those people to say, okay, you know, what's in my best interest here, rather than going and taking a job at Volkswagen, where, you know, I might make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and get good benefits, but that's not the same as, you know, uh, co-ownership of a startup that is a bell in the ball, bell of the ball kind of thing at this historical moment, I might make a lot more money. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, there are a lot of companies out there that, that have gone that way. There was uh, one actually here in Massachusetts called Newtonomy. They got taken out. Um, and, you know, Aurora is, is uh, I don't have a lot of visibility into Aurora. Um, well, the, the big, the big yeah, attractiveness yeah, you know, of, of Aurora. But I think, yeah. I think BW sort of kicked the tires and said, we're going to go elsewhere. And, and so Aurora said, well, okay, that's opportunities for other people to come in. And of course, FCA uh, has a very good business selling pickup trucks, SUVs, and, and highly profitable muscle cars um, in North America for the most part. Uh, and, you know, little cars in South America and, to, and in Southern Europe mostly, the, the Fiats. Um, they... Their historical, I mean, going way back to Chrysler days, their historical approach to new technology is we'll buy it from a supplier, uh, which has always hurt their margins. Um, but right now, I, I mean, that's kind of what Sergio was saying about electric cars. We'll buy it. We'll buy it. You know, self-driving, we'll partner, we'll buy it. Um, and maybe the new leadership at FCA is is thinking, well, we need to be a little further out ahead. And so... You know, if we're going to ask how significant is it that FCA is in here, what does it mean for them with Aurora, uh, that sort of depends to some extent on how Aurora's tech pans out. Uh, but it's both not surprising that FCA would do this and a little bit of a change from past practice where they might just wait to buy it from, you know, FTV or somebody. Uh, that might have been, you know, how Sergio might have thought about the problem three years ago. Yeah, I just wanted to pull a thread on a couple things you mentioned. You know, I've had the chance to talk to a few folks who work on autonomy and you know, kind of the, the, the background, mm -hmm. uh, the, the background there. Uh, it's interesting. You talked about the, the lack of uh, talent in the industry. It's some of the the folks who who have moved into autonomy have surprised me. Have come from the area of underwater mapping, right? Where mm -hmm. uh, where you 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 scan. You're, you're navigating underwater. You can't get GPS access. You have to navigate some way. So you scan using using lasers, lasers and, and radar and all those sorts of things. Obviously, that was not a giant industry. However, with the advent uh, of, of, of self-driving, where you need a much more precise uh, navigation uh, uh, apparatus yeah, than you could I, get I, from I mean, GPS. Yeah, closely related to a level four self-driving car that's yep. working off a digital map. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so <laughs> and so close. yeah, and, and so the, you know the, there are these people that you know uh, the industry found them. Uh, yeah, I don't think they ever expected they'd be working on self-driving cars when they probably got their PhD to go into this industry. However, the industry has really. Uh, you know, really grown on them. One other thing you mentioned as well, after the cruise deal, we saw a lot of people, you know, kind of a gold rush to this industry. We see we saw a lot of really aggressive timelines on when we're going to be rolling out level four self-driving. Um, obviously, those are backed somewhat by need to raise capital to fund fund their operations. However, almost every one of those, I think every one of those has been a mistake to date. I think every deadline we've had has been pushed back. Um, so uh, something to be aware of as, as we look at these at these uh, partners. I think some people have been disappointed by the rate at which at which autonomy has has progressed. But I, I think some some of that is the promises that you've gotten have been motivated by uh, financial interests less so than what is able you know truly uh, capable of, of being accomplished. Um, you know, uh, any, any last thoughts before before we kind of close up, John, on kind of what we're seeing in partnerships and autonomy and EVs going forward? Uh, well. 
electric vehicles will happen if the buyers show up. If they can get the and if they can get the costs far enough down, the buyers will show up. It'll take some time for everybody to get on board with this. It's people who think the whole world is going to electric guitars, electric guitars, electric cars. Hey. Excuse me. In four years, are 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 going to be disappointed. Uh, they're going to be hybrids. Right? We're going to be burning gas for quite a while yet. But but you know, once the industry gets the cost down, once the scale is achieved, uh, once you know regulatory incentives are in place, it, it, there'll be a lot more electric cars on the road. That that's happening. You know, the, there are no insurmountable obstacles to the technology. I think with respect to software for self-driving vehicles, um, there has been a real sense over the last year or so of, wow, this is a harder problem than we thought it was going to be. <laughs> On the part of a lot of people who are close watchers of this or even experts involved in it. Um, and I think a lot of people who came out and said, you know, we will launch our first self-driving vehicle in 2020 are now saying that they will launch something more like GM Super Cruise or Tesla's Autopilot in 2020 and not really a true, you know, take a nap while the car drives you to your next appointment kind of kind of self-driving um, or, you know, robot taxis where there's no driver at all ever. Uh, that stuff is, is, I think, further away than people thought even 18 months ago. Um, and so that that's another factor in all of these partnerships where people are saying, well, OK, we're spending two billion dollars a year on this effort. If we, you know, hoping it would pay off by 2021, if we've now got to spend two billion dollars a year on this effort uh, where we don't know when the payoff is going to hit. Well, maybe we better bring some folks into this so that we can spread the costs around. Yeah, definitely going to be a story to continue to follow. Uh, you know, for my own part, I, I really hope that we can accelerate this. I'm not I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of driving in, in, in tight traffic, but it, it's clearly a difficult engineering problem. Uh, and some of the costs of these sensors have to come down. I mean, I think a LiDAR right now is $10,000, you know, for a top of the line one. And they, you know, from from the folks I've talked to, they don't tend to be very durable over a long period of time. So we need but real the innovation. Other side in of these that things. is when I first started looking at this, they were $75,000. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so they've come a long way. You know, that's that's a big drop. Uh, it's not enough. But but whoa, progress has been made. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, John, yeah. always love having you on. Always fun to discuss, you know, the future of transportation. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon uh, to continue breaking it down. Thanks, as always. All right. Thanks, Nick. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For John Rosevier, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on.